doing uh, there as well. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, 16. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, that's on page number 908 in the Red Pew Bible. I um, encourage you to look along, even to fill out the outline that would be in the bulletin. Uh, may help you to see the general overview of where I'm uh, teaching from and how I'm teaching uh, from this text. I try my best to analyze the text to see what are the main themes that are coming out of the text. And some of these themes may have been building over a series of Sundays. As you can see, if you turn to Malachi chapter 3, we're, we're going to be in this sermon finishing the last paragraph of the book of Malachi. And this is a culmination of like building blocks that have been growing throughout the book as Malachi is calling his people to respond to their covenant obligations to follow God's Word, and he's teaching them characteristics that are essential for being a good covenant keeper. These have transfer to us in our context because we are a part of a new covenant in Christ. Christ saves us freely by His grace, but it is into a relationship with Him in which He expects us to reciprocate the love that He has poured out upon us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Important for us to capture the sense of these um, characteristics of good covenant keeping. And so we're coming towards the end, and we're really going to see one of the last elements here of what is necessary to keep good covenant with God. And let's look at verse 16. I'm going to read through the end of the book, and then we're going to think about the themes in this text. Verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before them of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The, the, day is coming, uh, the day is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet." on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." One of the most memorable and most frequent Bible illustrations 
of divine judgment is often associated with the two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, 22 times throughout Scripture, Sodom and Gomorrah are taken as a reference, uh, as an expression of God's divine judgment for sin. And the expression fire and brimstone is associated with their destruction. Now, the word brimstone is an older name. It is actually, I had to do a little research on that to discover what exactly it is. It's actually a non-metallic element of sulfur, and it literally means the stone that burns. And uh, sulfur ignites at a relatively low temperature and burns, and it ignites at relatively low temperatures, and it produces a a flame. Um, uh, You can actually press the play button there. Leah, and uh, it produces a very strong smell. Uh, Sulfur dioxide comes off of it, trioxide, and these things are very toxic to to breathe in, and it creates this low sulfur burn. It starts with a blood red color, and then it gradually turns to blue, and then dark blue, and then become black, but it's still burning, and it emits this bluish, bluish flame. And it comes from Genesis 19:24 in the Bible where it says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur, that is brimstone, and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Probably one of the most modern equivalencies to this would be kind of the idea of a raining fire might be uh, napalm. Uh, some of us will remember that as a, a strategic uh, weapon used during the Vietnam War. Uh, the main difference is that with napalm, it had to ignite on impact before the burst of flames occurred. In this case, this is fire raining in soft pellets coming down and blanketing a whole geographic community. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah were two cities that were known for their great wickedness, and the severe judgment of God rained down upon them, and also sodomy is also the older term that was used to uh, describe the sin that God was bringing judgment upon. Sodomy is an older way of describing homosexuality, the acts of homosexuality. Yet, I think it's very hard for us in our context to think about God raining down fire like this, as the Old Testament says, from the Lord. That sounds very antithetical. It sounds opposite to even the sound of the gospel in which love is supposed to flow from God. And it's very difficult, I think, because we misunderstand what the Bible is referring to when it talks about the wrath of God. Unfortunately, our understanding tends to be skewed by the wrath that comes from men, which does not produce the righteousness of God. There is a a difference between expression of 
judgment by God and when we as people respond in anger against how we have been violated as sinners. God's wrath, on the other hand, is His moral integrity. It's His moral integrity. I didn't just pick that out of the air. I actually, this was brought to my attention reading something that Chuck Swindoll had written, and I think he's right. Uh, The moral laws that are hardwired into our universe require vindication for their violation. They must be vindicated. And what sets Sodom and Gomorrah apart as deserving such severe retribution in this world is the provocation. It is the disrespect. It was the disregard for God's covenant of marriage. Marriage is a reflection of the unity and diversity that exists within God Himself. And God had purposely placed marriage into humanity to reflect His own glory and beauty and majesty. And sexually deviant behavior is then an abomination to God. And while all sin is a crime that is committed against God personally, it is, it is something He takes personally, there is a sense in which this kind of behavior is especially notorious because it directly corrupts the triune nature of God's being as reflected into the world. God exists in binary covenant expression of love. And it's hard for us to grasp, but it's easier for us to understand when we see a marriage that is thriving between a man and a woman, and the mutual love that they share one for another is an expression. And covenant keeping, as we we move into this, this last paragraph, the last remaining essential characteristic for us to to be able to be good covenant keepers is found in God's moral indignation towards people who do not respect Him. And to be a good covenant keeper, we, we need to have a healthy respect for those we are in relationship with. We have to respect the holiness of God because the Lord hates deviant behavior that destroys the beauty of His own internal relationship. When respect for the Lord fades, also it's important for us to realize that deviant behavior increases. People become arrogant, they become evildoers, and it just goes viral, if you will, in society. In covenant, Consistent covenant-keeping occurs, though, when we normalize a respect for the holiness of God and prioritize that above all. We have to respect God's moral integrity and His indignation for sin. That will help cause us to be uh, better covenant-keepers. Through the last few weeks, we've been looking at different elements, as I said, and you can see there on the screen, how that covenant keeping involves integrity, involves 
uh, fidelity and trusting and giving. And here, lastly, we're seeing respect is an essential part of our relationship with God Himself and then also with other people. If we do not respect the people we enter into relationship with, we're not going to keep covenant with them. The Lord's return is going to reveal two groups of people who either respect the Lord or do not respect the Lord. We're going to look at this text and see how that the Lord's return will reveal two groups of people. And uh, Leah, we're on the next slide there. The Lord's return will reveal two groups of people. Just as the nation of Israel was a mixture of faith and not faith, so are those who take refuge in the Christian church. I don't know if you realize this, but there are about a billion people in the world today who claim to be Christians. Many, though, are arrogant and don't respond really to the teachings of Jesus. They claim to be Christians. Indeed, there are many evildoers in the world claiming Christianity, but they are not of Christ. In fact, they put God to the test. They, they give this appearance that lightning is going to come down and strike them because of the way that they're living, and yet they're claiming to be Christians. And so, this text is a, a real strong warning to those so-called Christians who, who find comfort in association with the claims of Christ, but yet they're no, not really real Christians. Now, this is also a sermon that is intended to warn, but it is also intended to encourage those who are truly Christians. Now, these kinds of sermons used to terrify me when I was young. <laughs> they provoked my young heart to fear. And then that I would try to morally reform myself and just kind of keep, you know, doing more good works until I learned to rest in God's free gift and look out to it for my comfort and not be looking internally to what I was doing to demonstrate my faith. We have to put our faith wholly in Christ alone and realize that He saves us lock, stock, and barrel. We are not going to be covenant keepers in a perfect way. We're going to be growing, though, over time and learning how to be covenant keepers, and the Spirit will change us progressively over time, but we will not ever be perfect because only Christ Himself is that perfect covenant keeper. But this sermon is designed to awaken, to shock, to, to kind of kind of awaken people who have taken a false comfort in claiming to be Christians, yet not carrying out the deeds and the love for God that they would have if they were truly Christians. And so, in verse 16 to 17, I read these texts, this text a little while ago, what you see here is there's a demonstration that the Lord knows who are His. There are many people who claim to be Christians, but ultimately what's most important is that the Lord claims them, that the Lord knows who are His. 
I should read verses 16 and 17 again just so that we can see where these truths are coming from. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. So in the previous text, we have people who are saying, well, you know, it's not worth serving God. There are people who are arrogant, they're evildoers, and it's like they, they always get by with doing whatever they want without any consequence. What is the use of serving the Lord? And people are tempted to say those things. But then verse 16 shows the talking points that we ought to actually have if we truly fear the Lord, is that those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day that when I make up my treasured possessions, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. What did they say to each other? It says in verse 16, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. But what did they say? And I need to pause here not to be distracting, but to bring clarity. Sometimes Bible translation is a matter of interpreting the Hebrew in an undefined pronoun. Who, who is speaking and what's the subject of their speaking? And some translations here leave it a little bit ambiguous, as, and it sounds like here that, you know, they were just speaking to one another, but we don't really know what they were speaking to one another. And uh, older commentators like uh, Calvin thought that this was perhaps just a, a conversation. We just don't know what they were saying. Luther, on the other hand, believed, as he was translating from the Hebrew, that they were encouraging one another with this truth that's found in the last half of verse 16. And I lean towards Luther here, in which the Lord has paid attention. They were saying, yes, the Lord has paid attention, and He has heard the unbelieving. And a book of remembrance was written before Him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. What they were doing was they were encouraging themselves with what they knew to be true, that God has a book of remembrance and nothing escapes His attention. They were encouraging themselves with the truth. This morning, prior to the service, conversation, some of us were concerned about some of the things we were seeing in our world around us. But what did we do? We didn't wallow in that concern, we reminded ourselves that He is still upon the throne. That's what those who fear the Lord do. They, they bring recognition that He is sovereign and in charge, and we don't, we don't worry. We know He is coming, and He's going to set things right. Now, this little phrase, Book of Remembrance, is really interesting because in the ancient Near East, uh, kings themselves in their court had um, a written record of the most important events that happened in their court, in their, their kingdom. There was like a recorder that was kind of documenting everything that took place. We also live with lots of documentation. You all know this. 
If you have a phone, there's someone documenting what you're doing. I was uh, reminded of this on my flight home yesterday. I, I, I had a I long story, but I had an opportunity to fly down to South Carolina this week and see two of my boys and bring two of my boys with me. On a return flight, the airplane uh, needed maintenance in Charlotte, and it was the flight recorder that records every single movement of that flight on a hard drive for later investigation purposes. Kind of a critical piece of equipment. We couldn't take off until the recorder was inserted, a new recorder was put into the plane. Uh, and I think those are helpful images because everything that's going on in the world is not escaping the notice of God. All the movements, all the wickedness, all the injustices are being recorded, and later there will be vindication for everything that we see, we are concerned about. And so, this little image of a book of remembrance is something that comes up throughout Scripture, even in the New Testament. Uh, it comes up at least seven times. It's referred to as the book of of life. And the Christian understanding is drawn out of Old Testament expressions, even as David in Psalm 139 talked about even before he was born. All of his being was being, was recorded, pre-recorded in God's book, which is mysterious to us to how, how all that could, could be, and it's hard for us to understand that. Jesus also Himself refers to this book when His disciples come back rejoicing that they had cast out demons and they had done mighty works in His name. And Jesus said to them, now that's great, that's exciting, but don't simply rejoice in this, that you can do these things, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Really helpful for us to remember these truths. God, I believe, is like a proud parent or grandparent. Maybe they have a Facebook page that they post those things that they're proud of that their children have done or their grandchildren have done. I see in verse 17, this book of remembrance is established because it records those who are His own. In verse 17, they shall be Mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up My treasured possessions. I'm going to go and I'm going to collect all of My treasured people and bring them close to Myself one day. And, and I'm recording everything that's going on that they're doing. And it's just a beautiful reminder. Uh, when Abby and I were young, younger, without children, a lot of our vacation time was spent uh, with family, helping family. And one occasion, I recall, we spent a good bit of a week helping my in-laws downsize their 40-year home and helping them to prepare for a yard sale. That was our vacation, and yet we didn't think anything of it. It was something that just we we wanted to do. And I was shocked. At the end of the week, before we were to return back to school, it was not even requested or even thought of, 
they handed us a sizable check for what we had helped them do. Basically, they, they, they transferred, they transferred this, this wealth of income from the sale to us. They gave it to us freely just because. It wasn't expected. And I thought about this recently, at treasured possessions and, and, and how God lavishes His grace upon us. And if it's true that this is something that occurs in earthly families, how much more our Heavenly Father when He comes to collect His treasured possessions? I was also reminded of Hebrews 6, verse 10, which says, For God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. There is this expectation in Paul that reward will come for those whom God loves and cares for. God is not an idle spectator. He, he sees what's going on in America. He sees what's going on in China. He sees what's going on in the union halls of Scranton. He knows what's happening in Honesdale. He takes note of everything, everyone. And the Lord knows who are His, and He will not forget them. In verse 17 it says, and He spares them. He spares them as a man spares his son who serves him. The book of remembrance is not merely a, miss, you know, a list of people that God does not want to forget. It's God's list of people He has bound Himself to in covenant obligation. He loves us with an unending love, and He will not let us go. There is also in these texts, yes, on the other side of the encouragement, there is also that side of warning that the Lord also knows those who are not His. Verse 18 through first part of chapter 4 says, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. God's wrath is not haphazard. It is a reflection of His moral integrity. He has to bring punishment for sins, and to those who reject the new covenant promise in Christ, like there is a, a way of escape in Christ by faith in Him. He took the punishment we deserve. And the need, though, to bring the judgment will reveal those who are not His. Verse 18, there is this curious little phrase in which he says, once more. Once more you shall see the distinction. What is this referring to? And particularly in a context of a book of remembrance. There is a significant moment in Israel's history that I have discussed at previous parts of this series in which Moses came down from the mountain and he observed Israel. They had just been rescued through the Red Sea. 
Like they had been delivered from bondage. They were at the foot of Sinai, and Moses was going up the mountain to receive instruction from the Lord of how he wanted his people to live. And when he comes down, he sees the wickedness of immoral orgies. There are um, taking place right in front of this golden calf, and he throws down the tablets, symbolizing the broken covenant before it even got started. And then Moses cries out, who is on the Lord's side? Come over to me. And his uh, fellow tribesmen from Levi congregated around him, and in that moment they were required to take up arms against their own people and bring judgment for the sin of idolatry in the immorality that was taking place in the presence of God at the mountain. It was decisive leadership that God blessed and recognized as Moses' valiant act to stave off the wrath of God. Moses says to the people on the next day after this incident, he says in Exodus chapter 32, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And it's a really remarkable account. I'd encourage you to even take time to read it today. Exodus 32, it'll only take you maybe five minutes this afternoon. But up in the mountain, Moses pled with God to forgive Israel of their sins. And if he wouldn't forgive them, he boldly asked God then to permit his own name to be blotted out of God's book. The sin that Israel had committed was a total disrespect for God's majesty and His holiness. And they rebelled against Him with what was, the Bible says, like a high hand. It's like shaking your fist in the face of God. In our context, this would mean a persistent rejection of Christ. To go it alone, to harden your heart and say, I want nothing to do with God or Christ or any of that stuff. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Though they know God's righteousness, decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Leah, I think the slide is the next one, dear. And I read this, and as I thought about the wrath of God coming down upon sins of unrighteousness and flagrant disrespect. Did you hear that the drag queen bingo at the Cooperage was open to all ages? Head standing room only. Has it not shocked you how rapidly our society is giving itself over to now 
These are now norms. How does this happen? It happens when people who hold positions of leadership in a community do not revere God's holiness. They don't speak up. It comes when people don't use their platform like Moses to say, this is wrong. We're not going beyond this point. This is wrong. Who will come to the Lord's side? When respect for the Lord fades, deviant behavior increases and people become arrogant and evildoers go viral. And that can be heavy, that can be weighing for us as Christians as we see these things happen. But we ought not yield to those who scoff and say, where is the promise of His coming? The great sort is coming. The great sort is coming. Some theologians have interpreted the day as referring to Christ's first coming. And yet there are various facts about the future that are thrown into these statements here that don't always fit. For example, when John the Baptist said that the one who came after him would baptize with the Spirit and fire, Jesus was meant to do both, but in His ministry the first time, He didn't do both. He did one of those. He brought the Spirit. Jesus is coming again, and He's going to bring the fire. And when Jesus comes in His glory and all His angels with Him, He will sit in His glorious throne, and He will sort the nations. In Matthew's gospel, we hear these words, He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep are said to enter into the kingdom prepared for them, and the goats are taken away directly into eternal punishment. Revelation 20 verse 15 says that anyone whose name is not written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. The oven door will be open. It will be heated seven times hotter than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. And the heat will set people ablaze even before they touch those flames. Neither root nor branch will be found. It does not give me any pleasure or sense of satisfaction to express those words, but this is the truth. This is revelation directly from God who sees everything in our world. He has a recorder recording everything, and He is coming again. But there is also hope here for His own people. The Lord will also restore His people through Christ. And you pick up in verse 2 this hopefulness in the, in the mix of needing to state moral indignation for sin. There is also, on the other side, a hopefulness that the Lord will restore His people through Christ who's coming. 
When Malachi's writing, this had not yet occurred, Christ in His resurrection. Those who fear the Lord, verse 2, says, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. So that burning will not burn you, instead it will heal you. The Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter, uh, utter destruction. Those who fear and have reverence for the, the Lord's name, there will, there will be a, a remembrance of their own covenant obligations. They'll remember that they will be spared and it will motivate them to greater acts of of loyalty and faithfulness to Christ. And instead of a consuming oven, there will come instead healing, the healing rays of the sun. Light will come and reconciliation. The Lord will bring healing. Verse 2 to 3, there are several metaphors in these verses, and I'm not going to go into great depth on each one, but just to say there is a picture of a rising sun, a leaping calf, and a soldier's boot, and they have something in common. They have aspects of flourishing. You have the sun's, the traditional translation is wings, but that's just the, the optical visual of the sun having wings, but it's the idea it's rays, and they depict fullness of life. And, and, and when you're in a, not an oppressive sun, but when you're in a sun like it just does something for you that it lifts your mood, right? Uh, the sun is a, is a declining commodity at this time of year, but the sun has life-giving uh, elements in it. The leaping calf, both the fullness of that new life and such exuberance of a, a young calf, just, just so like uncontained joy. That's the only way I can think of a newborn calf, just kicking and jumping all over the place. Not even, can't even get his feet quite underneath of himself, and he's ready to go. And then the victor's boot, trampling down the enemy who is burnt into ashes. It's the idea of satisfaction in a struggle. There is something invigorating in your soul when you see poetic justice occur, that they got just what they deserved. There's something that says, yes, I can live again, whereas before you were in despair. And all of these images are intended to show us that when Christ comes, it will be radically different than what we've experienced in this life to this point. Verse 2, the son of righteousness. Righteousness is a key word here, and it kind of sums up actually all of, the metaf all of the ingredients of covenant keeping that have been in this book. 
because righteousness in itself is what it takes. That's, that's what covenant keep in relationship, being a just person is what's being referred to here. It's, it's to act justly in relationship with others, to treat others as you would wish to be treated. It's not just living out the golden rule, but it's having a wholeness of heart that considers others more important than oneself. And righteousness really does sum up all the elements that are needed for covenant keeping. Like, if you think about it, integrity, fidelity, trust, giving, respect, all of these enter into, and we say, if, if you met someone who had all of these, these characteristics, you'd say, that's a good guy. That's a, that's a just person. I, I actually want to be in relationship with that person. Jesus was that son of righteousness, the true light who shined in darkness. He was the light of the world, and Jesus kept covenant with His Father so that we could come to the Father through Him. See, the Son gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit to, to, to change us from the inside out so that over time we become good covenant keepers. We become healed. We become people known for integrity of faithfulness, of trust in their living God, and, and, and we are honest about when we sin, and we don't cover up sin because we're, we recognize God's stance against sin. And the Holy Spirit gives us love that's poured into our hearts so that we are giving instead of taking from people. We are givers. But keeping covenant with the Lord is hard. It is hard. And people don't always treat us as well as we ought to. You know, it's really important that we, we affirm the biblical teaching of covenant and I think it's important that we, we become covenant-keeping kinds of people again. I don't know if you've picked up on this in the media, but the Christian teaching on gender and sexuality is not popular right now. And it's going to become to an impasse pretty soon, maybe even sooner than we think. This so-called Respect for Marriage Act, if it were to pass, would probably cause us as Christians to lose a tax-exempt status. And if you don't choose to use people's pronouns in your workplace, you're going you're gonna to suffer persecution. You may actually lose your, your livelihood. But when these things happen, what do we do? Do we retreat? Do we just say it's not worth serving the Lord? Or do we lean in harder realizing that God sees everything that's going on and He will reward us for being faithful covenant keepers? When God acts on that day, all the pain and sorrow that you will incur for being a faithful Christian will be rewarded. If you 
give up your vacation and serve your heavenly Father, He will give you a reward. The Lord is going to bring healing, but He's also bringing reconciliation. Verses 4 through 6, we see what seem to be out-of-place statements. We see reference to Moses. We see reference to Elijah. And we see Moses being invoked in the context of the Sinai law and the covenant and the expression of standing willing to be blotted out of God's book. We see Elijah here coming, as it says in verse 5, before the, the great and awesome day of the Lord. In the same way that, Je- that Moses prefigured Jesus, Elijah prefigured John the Baptist. But there were partial aspects here. Christ coming with the Spirit, but then later with fire, it's reasonable to believe that there will be another Elijah-like witness who is yet to come. When Jesus said to His disciples, if you are willing to accept it, He is Elijah who has come, and he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This leads me to believe that Jesus knew that judgment with fire would be in the future, and John's ministry in that day was simply partial. There is a greater coming, a greater fulfillment yet to come. I'm not alone in this assessment, but I believe, as the early church did, that at least one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11 would be an Elijah-like figure who would prepare Israel for her Messiah's return. But what is needed for return? There is this discussion in verse 5 about this Elijah-like person turning the hearts of fathers to their children, hearts of children to their fathers. That is the picture of reconciliation. We can have internal healing in ourselves, but then we also need to return to relationship. We can forgive others for their offenses towards us, but then we have to move ourselves into relationship with those who have caused offense to us. And the greatest expression of this, this occurs through, through us who have a Heavenly Father. We as children have to have our hearts turned toward Him and be reconciled to Him. In this text, we see pictures of the one who will come to assist Israel in the restoration of their covenant relationship with, with God. True Israel, though, has manifested itself throughout the ages through genuine repentance and return to the Lord from the heart. We need a new heart given to us to return to the Lord. And the prophecy of Malachi is remarkable because it begins with this reminder that God's people are loved by God. He loves them thoroughly. But yet they they resist, and they say, well, how have you loved us? Well, here at the end, there is this perspective of potential and utter judgment. What do we make of this? What we make of this is that God's judgment cannot be separated from His grace. Paul said this, that if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed if he has no love for the Lord. 
God is just. He punishes sin, but He will not hold that person guiltless who refuses to look to Christ, who has taken punishment for them. And the last words of Malachi end with this threat of a curse, and it's the last words that we hear uttered in the Old Testament era. It's the last words that are, that are heard until we hear the stirring of the Holy Spirit moving in the womb of Elijah, the womb of, of Mary. The last words of Malachi are served to reinforce the need to take seriously our covenant obligations in Christ Jesus. Covenant keeping is my last opportunity to kind of present this summary. Involves integrity, fidelity, trust, giving, and respecting the Lord. And so this morning, I've tried to emphasize that respect for the Lord causes you to remember your obligations, your covenant obligations. When respect for the Lord declines, deviant behavior increases. People become arrogant, people become evildoers, and it just goes out like wildfire. And we cannot yield to the scoffers who say, where is the promise of His coming? Peter said this, and Second Peter said, know this, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The darker our nation becomes, our light needs to shine, and it will shine brighter if it's a true light that is inside us. Our nations, our families, our community need us to honor covenant with faithfulness and respect for the Lord. The wrath of God is coming, and He will rain down fire as He has promised. His moral integrity must punish those crimes that we have committed against Him. However, He has already punished them for us who believe he has already punished them in His own Son. And there is an invitation to turn from trusting in your own selves to be able to withstand that day, a turning from your own sins and calling upon Him, He will justly forgive you because He's already taken care of that punishment in His own Son. I invite you to turn. If your heart is moved and you have men trusting in yourself, turn to the Lord. He is a gracious Heavenly Father. He will forgive you of all your sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for time in the book of Malachi. Uh, over the last eight weeks, I, I pray, Father, that as we consider the world around us, that we would not give